It was my first experience at a Christian event. I had followed my cousin, who's seven years older than me, uh, to a youth event. I had just moved to America as a seven-year-old to live with my aunt and uncle. And as many of you know, my uncle was a pastor, so I naturally became somewhat unexpectedly a pastor's kid. Even though no one in my immediate family in Korea ever even stepped foot in a church. And I myself, at that age, seven years old, wasn't a Christian. I didn't know anything about God. I didn't know anything about Jesus. I didn't know anything about the Bible at the time. Well, at this youth retreat, I saw older brothers and sisters passionately singing to God. I heard a passionate speaker challenging the students to boldly trust in God. And then the speaker, after he was done speaking, invited the students to come forward and to pray. So many of the students went forward, and they began to pray. And some of the students began to pray out loud. Some were even crying. Why are they so sad, I thought to myself. Observing all this for the very first time, it was a strange experience for me, to say the least, but something about the students' sincerity drew me in. I wanted to pray to God. I wanted to cry to God. So quietly from the back, I walked up towards the students as the students were kneeled, and I kneeled alongside them uh, in the front of the meeting room. After all, I'm a pastor's kid now, so I should at least appear engaged, I thought to myself. And I tried my best to be very sincere. Nobody at this point had taught me to pray properly, so I was doing my best. And finally, in the midst of my praying, or or trying to pray, I was able to squeeze out a tear. And I felt so proud of myself. I was so happy. Afterward, when the prayer time was over and the service was over, I went up to everybody and I told everyone, guess what? I cried. I cried in prayer. A little tear came out of my eye. Aren't you proud of me? It was my first spiritual experience and I was very proud of it. The only thing is, for years after that, almost at every single retreat, you know how churches have retreats every summer and retreat uh, summer and winter? That was how it was in my uh, church. I went forward at every single altar call and re-accepted Christ again and again and again. And then I would backslide. I would doubt my decisions that I made before God. I will never sin against you, God. I'm going to read the Bible every single day and wholly trust in you, God. And then I would rededicate myself at the next retreat to Jesus. Gosh, I'm going to live for you, Lord, again and again and again. And this time, I'm going to really commit to following you. Well, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was basically a pro-altar call invitation responder. Uh, Whenever there was an altar call, you you know I was the first one up there, very passionately. Ah! (laughs) I would look over at my friends, you coming? And I'll be the first one to lead the way. That is until the summer of my second year in college, this time something was different. You see, I had heard the biblical gospel preached from the Bible every week, every Sunday after Sunday at my college ministry from Pastor Steve Pettit. And that summer, at a conference, a grace-saturated gospel from Pastor Jay Park. And for the first time at another conference, I heard about the supremacy of Christ preached by Pastor John Piper when he urged college students to don't waste your life. It was that summer I truly repented of my sins. I truly believed. Something in me had changed, I know, because next time there was an invitation to come forward, I knew I didn't need to go forward. Because at that point, I did believe. My faith was certain. My faith relied not on me, but what Christ has done on my behalf. I never had to fake cry again, 
or walk up to another altar call ever again. I used to try to be the cool kid in the back. Now I was always sitting in the front. The terrible music team leading music at that church on Sunday gathering sounded so glorious and gave me so much joy. My hands, which are usually stuck in my pockets, were now freely lifted. A boring, uninteresting sermon suddenly became food to my soul and became such sweet words in my ears. What had happened? I was converted. This time, I had no reservations about it, no doubts as to whether I was sure or if it was because my friends were all excited about it. I was certain because I knew now that salvation was by grace alone. I became a true believer and a true follower of Christ. I believed, and so I got baptized. We're continuing our series, Rediscovered Church, guided by the book of the same title by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman. And through this three-part series, we want to consider the what and who The Bible says the church is. This afternoon, we'll be learning about who makes up the church and what that means for you and me. Last Sunday, uh, to start us off in part one of our series, we asked the question, what is the church? And I shared with you the church is, point number one, God's purpose to display his glory. God's purpose to display his glory, most specifically to display Jesus in all of his glory. And second, I shared with you the church is God's people set apart. God's people set apart. And third, last week I shared with you the church is God's instrument for gospel proclamation. And I know that I shared a lot of information last Sunday, but I hope the one thing you got, the one thing that you were challenged by, is that the church is essential. That the church is central to God's purpose for his people. That if you are a Christian, it is who we are as God's people. That the church is God's idea from the beginning, from the Old Testament, not just the New that the church is Jesus' body as he is the head, that the church is Jesus' bride as he is the bridegroom. The church is the gospel made visible. And according to Ephesians 3.10, again, this amazing verse, it says, it is through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Now, much of what I shared is directly from the book, Rediscover Church, and also a very helpful primer on the doctrine of the church by Pastor Mark Dever called The Church. So I encourage you to get a copy of these books yourself and grow in your knowledge of this very important yet often undermined doctrine of the church in so many of our churches. Be edified and encouraged in learning what privilege and gift it is that we get to gather together each Sunday to worship and proclaim our King and Lord Jesus Christ together with our covenanted body of believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Uh, This afternoon, based on the second chapter of Rediscovered Church, I want us to consider the question, who can belong to a church? Who can belong to a church? Who are the people who are called to be members of a church? Now, before I answer that question through today's message, I want to point out last week I focused a lot on what the Scripture teaches regarding the universal church. The universal church. Now, what I'm not talking about is the universalist church. That is a heretical religion that teaches that there are many paths to God. I'm not talking about the universalist church, but the universal church. And the universal church is speaking of Christians of all time, in all place, past, present, and future, who will make up the eternal congregation in heaven when Jesus returns and raises us up with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Last week, I gave two definitions of the church. The first definition, painting more of a picture for the universal church. And the second definition was more of a definition for the local church. But basically, if you read the book, Rediscovered Church, 
Each phrase of the first definition is elaborated into a chapter of the book. And the definition serves as a grand biblical vision of sorts on what the church is and how we can experience the reality of the universal church through local churches. So again, the definition goes from big picture, universal church, to a more narrow local church. So in case uh, some of you are wondering and asking why I didn't talk too much about the local church, uh, we're going to get there. That's what I'm trying to emphasize. But for now, let me repeat the definition of what a church is. And again, today, we'll focus on the first phrase of this definition. Here's the definition of what a church is. Don't try to write this down. Just try to absorb it as best as you can. It's a long definition. A church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ and King, to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper, and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world following the teaching and example of its pastors. So again, focusing on the first phrase, a church is composed of a group of Christians, but more specifically, what kinds of Christians? What about the Christians? Who are the Christians who can belong to a church? I have three points for you. Surprise. Point number one, the converted. Point number two, the adopted. And point number three, the baptized. The converted, the adopted, and the baptized. I pray through this message you will be reminded again the privilege and joy you and I have as Christians to be recipients of God's gift of salvation and the gift, and what a gift it is to be a member of His church. I pray that some of you will rediscover your love for the church by coming to a deeper understanding of how important the church is for Jesus and how it ought to be important and essential for us. And I pray for some of you, for anyone who do not consider yourself a Christian, that perhaps you will discover for the first time through the word that you will hear today and through the love and the fellowship that you experience through New Covenant Baptist Church that will point you to the reason and the source of why we love one another and why we love to gather and why we love to worship and sing and pray and hear God's word and that reason Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you'll see him and encounter him today through his word. So who can belong to a church? Point number one, the converted. The converted. John 3, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, entails the well-known conversation between Jesus and a Jewish rabbi, a teacher of the law named Nicodemus. But Nicodemus came at night seeking Jesus with a curiosity to get to know him better. But before Nicodemus is even able to conjure up a question out of his lips, Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.3 And Jesus says in John 3.5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says later down in verse 7 and 8 in chapter 3, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus was directly and clearly telling the Pharisee, Nicodemus, a religious leader and a teacher of the Jewish Scriptures, someone who was well-known and respected at the time in his society as a man of God, Jesus was saying to him, unless one is regenerated by the Spirit of God, you cannot see You cannot enter, you cannot know the kingdom of God. 
And thus begins one of the most important teachings in the Bible about the doctrine of conversion and what it means to be a part of God's church. You see, the doctrine of conversion is important in our conversation about the doctrine of the church because the two doctrines, two ways of understanding what it teaches in the Bible are closely tied together. Conversion and church is tied together. As Jonathan Lehman, our friend and our guest speaker a couple weeks ago and author of this book, Rediscovered Church, says, if church is a house, conversion is the timber. The timber you use to build the house will dramatically affect the kind of house you get. So, in other words, the strength of the wood and the timber that you use to build the house determines the strength of the house. So I wonder if you have recently thought about what it means to be converted and the implications that follow for you and me. What does it mean in God's goodness and by his sovereign will that you were born again, born anew in Christ? Today at our members meeting, following our service, 15 minutes after, we'll have the joy of voting in a number of new members But I was so encouraged and blessed. It's one of the most favorite things I get to do as one of the pastors, hearing about each of the incoming members' testimonies. I won't go into detail because a couple weeks from now, you'll get to hear some of the testimonies at our baptism service. But one person shared how in a time when they wanted to walk away from God and thought Christianity was irrelevant, God held them fast and gave them a desire to read God's Word. One person shared how in a time when they felt all alone, God provided a community of believers to encourage them toward faith in Christ. One person shared how in a time of tragedy, a passing of a loved one, instead of hating or blaming God, God gave them a great desire to know Him and to trust Him and to turn to Him. These are evidences of grace and in these brothers' and sisters' lives, is it not? You see, these are not normal tendencies for sinful humans like you and me. Sinful human beings, it's normal for us to run from God. Sinful human beings cling to the tangible, don't we? What our eyes can see, what our hands can touch, what our hearts can most immediately feel. It is only through the spiritual work of the Holy Spirit, sinful human beings, whom the Bible in Ephesians 2 describes as dead in our trespasses and sins, under the dominion of the world, the flesh, and the devil, could turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, according to 1 Thessalonians 1.9. You see, this turning, this change is only possible because God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, made us alive again together with Christ. Hence, Christian conversion occurs when sinners turn to God in repentance and faith for salvation upon hearing the gospel and trusting in Christ as their substitute and Savior. Conversion is a U-turn in a person's life from depravity to glory, from darkness into marvelous light, from spiritual death to spiritual life, from idol worship to God worship, from self-righteousness to Christ's righteousness, from self-rule to God's rule, from the domain of the devil to the kingdom of God, from a citizen of earth to a citizen of heaven. The Bible describes conversion in various ways. Regeneration as according to 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Bible also talks about it in terms of recreation according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
In Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The Bible also speaks of conversion in terms of transformation, doesn't it? As according to this verse, and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, conversion is what happens when Jesus calls us to repent and believe, according to Mark 1.15, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. It's what happens when Jesus calls us to take up our crosses and follow him, according to Luke 9.23. It's Romans 6.17, but thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you are committed. It's Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's 1 Peter 1, 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It's Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Who can belong to a church? It's for those who are fully and wholeheartedly aware that we have been saved from sin and from God's grace by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Yes, it's true. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God's blessing was granted to a select people, the nation of Israel, in order to preserve a messianic lineage, in order for Jesus to be born, It's also true that the children of Israel were counted among the household of faith. But what has never changed since the Old Testament days is that salvation, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, was granted only by grace through faith in Christ alone. As they look forward to the Messiah's substitutionary work, as we look backward to Christ's finished work, His perfect life, His death, His resurrection and ascension. And since then, it's even more abundantly clear that those who are called by God to be the people of God are those who have been regenerated, born again, made new and alive by the supernatural work of God into faith and to persevere to the end. The New Testament church is made of those who are genuinely and truly and undoubtedly converted. So brothers and sisters, how does your conversion impact your worship, the way you sing, the way you pray, the way you live out your decisions in your daily life? How does it affect the posture in which you are glorifying God today and every day when you encounter a world full of sin and brokenness? How does your conversion, the fact that you have been made alive, grow your humility toward God to give you a hunger for His Word? Because you know that apart from His truth, we are prone to deception and temptation and discouragement and sin. How does your conversion give you a desire for prayer to carry your burdens and your anxieties to Him because, you know, apart from the Holy Spirit, we are so weak and so frail and prone again to to falter? How does your conversion remind you of your identity when the world says you are this or that or that you ought to look like this or do these things or or think and, and, and talk and do these things in a certain way? When you are, how does it remind you that you are a child of God, born again to newness of life, to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want to recommend you a book titled Conversion by Pastor Michael Lawrence, which initially doesn't appear too appealing. It's just titled simply Conversion, 
but I would say it's one of the most helpful and insightful books uh, that I've read recently uh, and, and went over this past week. And I want to encourage all of us, all of our members, to buy a copy and read it with someone else to help you think more about the doctrine of conversion. So, what is the testimony of your conversion? Some stories of conversion are more dramatic than others. Some were delivered from a sinful life of rebellion and darkness. While some of you uh, never even remember a time when you didn't go to church and believed, maybe you always believed in Jesus. Either way, all conversion is the miraculous, gracious, supernatural work of God. So praise Him for it. You didn't do anything to get yourself saved. As Romans 8.3 says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son. Well, our conversion doesn't end with us being good with God alone, but it also impacts our relationship with others, which moves us to our second point. Who can belong to a church? Point number two, the adopted. The adopted. Uh, Many of you know my non-Christian parents sent me to America from Korea to give me an opportunity to pursue the American dream when I was only, again, seven years old. What may sound somewhat opportunistic and idealistic, right? Send your son to to America to achieve the American dream at the time was actually, for me, a source of great pain and suffering in most of my childhood and adolescence. That's why, after 32 years later, I'm still talking about it. I I don't know how many of you guys have heard me talk about me coming to America at seven years old, at least a thousand times in my sermon illustrations. And I do it because it was such a life-changing experience for me, such an impacting, such a significant transition in my life. But in hindsight, as I think about it, I know now the reason why I was sent to America was so significant. It wasn't just just a move to a new country where I had to learn a new language and learn a new lifestyle. It was because I was basically adopted into a new family, which was in part a very important part in shaping the trajectory of my, the course of my eternity. As God sovereignly used my aunt and uncle and my cousin to introduce me to Christianity. Again, as I said, my uncle was a pastor, so as soon as I moved to America at seven years old, I started going to church. I had no choice. And through their love and through their care and through their discipleship and through what they modeled, I came to know Christ. Now, although it wasn't officialized legally, basically my aunt became my new mom, my uncle became my new dad, and my cousin became my new older sister. When I was growing up, I really struggled with this idea that perhaps my mom and dad abandoned me and gave me away to my aunt and uncle because they couldn't take care of me or they didn't want me. And for a very long time, I I struggled with anger at them, and I even hated them that I didn't have a normal family like most other people do. But in the end, in the end, although it pained me excruciatingly to have seen my dad pass away without knowing Jesus, and to this day, to this day, seeing my mom and my older brother reject Christianity... I know in God's sovereignty what amazing grace, what undeserved love I have received from God through my uncle and aunt's parenting and discipleship by God's mercy and grace. To come to know Christ as my personal Lord and Savior and to stand before you today as a preacher of God's word and as a pastor of New Covenant Baptist Church. Brothers and sisters, all throughout Scripture, the idea of adoption is laced throughout God's redemption story. It's at the very heart of Christian theology. Strangers and aliens being admitted to the family of God. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. 
Psalm 68, 5, 6 says, God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows. God sets the lonely in families. In Isaiah 43, 5 and 6, God says, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Hosea 14, 3 says, In you, the orphaned, find mercy. Romans 8, 23, We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And Romans 8, 14, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So, the idea of sonship is taught throughout the Bible. That's clear. In Christ, the Son of God, we are adopted as children of God. And God is our heavenly, gracious, merciful, and good Father. But not only that, as if that wasn't enough. Not only are we adopted as sons and daughters of God. There's more. We are adopted. We are invited into the family of God. Sonship, but also kinship. When God saves us, he brings us into a relationship with himself. But not only that, he also brings us into a community, a spiritual family. In other words, the cleansing blood of Christ spilt on the cross unites all believers as the family of God. This is what Mark 14, 24 means. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is what it means in John 10, 16, when Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is what it means, Ephesians 2, 13, when it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is what it means, Hebrews 9, 15, For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. This is what it means, 1 John 1, 7, when it says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So you may have heard some say, blood is thicker than water. And that phrase means that their loyalty to their family members is greater than loyalty to someone else, right? But Scripture teaches us Jesus' blood is thicker than human blood. Nothing but the blood because the fellowship and the unity of God's spiritual family has been bonded by the peace that Jesus Christ wrought to secure on our behalf by His death on the cross and by His resurrection. Amen? Nothing but the blood of Jesus secures our peace secures our hope, secures our eternity. Again, did you know this was true all throughout Scripture, beginning from the old? In Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 28. Turn there real quick. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 through 28. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 28 says... And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Author Pastor Michael Lawrence notes 
in his book, Conversion, all throughout these verses, the word you is actually written in plural form. This is not just addressed to individual single people. It's addressed to a group of people, his people, the church. The Spirit doesn't simply make me and you a singular new creation, you see. He makes us a part of God's new creation people. He inscribes God's rule on our hearts, teaching us about loving our neighbors and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ especially. He teaches us that our lives with God includes life with God's people in the corporate worship and common life of the church. And that is exactly why 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, what is he? He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's why Michael Lauren says again, regeneration gives us a heart not only for God, but also for God's people. That's why 1 Peter 2.10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the unique message of Christianity. That the righteous God who created all things in love had a plan from the very beginning to set apart a people for himself who would come to know his love, who would come to be made alive by his love, who would come to display his love as a corporate body, the church. But as scripture teaches us, this great redemption and salvation had nothing to do with us but fully on who he was. He is the loving one. He is the gracious one. He is the merciful one. We know this because as soon as we had an opportunity, man chose what? To distrust God and to distrust his word and to rebel against his commands. This is not only true of Adam and Eve, the first humans. It's the everyday picture of every single one of us when we choose to be our own gods. The Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says no one is righteous, not even one. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Hence, we were separated from God, eternally and justly condemned to death, God's wrath and judgment in eternal hell. Why? Because God is the source of life. Because God is the giver and sustainer of life. Yet what do we do? We chose death over and over and over again when we rejected God and chose ourselves. And we face consequences and death looms over us. Yet we say, God, you're not fair. God, you're an egomaniac. God, I'm mad at you. God, why? What's fair actually is for us sinful rebels to face death and judgment in eternity in hell, an eternity of torture and regret and pain. That is what is fair for us who have rejected God over and over again. But God, but God, who is rich in love, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty for our forgiveness, for our redemption, for our atonement, for our salvation. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, so that by his sinless life and by his substitute death, we may be crucified with him in his death and made alive with him in his resurrection from the dead when he conquered sin, death, and Satan once and for all. By his sacrifice 
and by his finished work on the cross, we have been privileged to know him and to trust him and to display him as his people. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So friend, if you are here this afternoon and you know yourself to not be a Christian, do not, do not, do not think you came here by accident. The sovereign God of the universe is calling on you, has invited you to be here today, to repent of your sins, to believe that he died and rose again for you, and to trust him with your whole life. John 10.10 says the thief, Satan, and the gods of this world comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. So I want to encourage you. I want to urge you, friend, if you do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, trust in him today and live the new and abundant life in him. Don't leave this place without talking to someone about how you can follow Jesus. I'll be standing at the back door at the close of service. Philip, our service leader, will be standing at this door. Pastor Jeremy will be standing at the outside door. Or talk to someone next to you who seems to be nice and smiling and truly desires to talk to you with their eyes smiling at you. Don't leave this place without talking to somebody about how to follow Jesus. We would love to talk to anyone who does not know Christ about how good Jesus is, how awesome and amazing he is, and how blessing it is to be a part of his family. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how does the reality that every single one of us who are once far off and cast out, who are once not a people and without mercy, have been made new and adopted into his family? How should this reality shape our discipleship? How we interact with others who are different than us, whether in age, whether in ethnicity, whether in stage of life, whether in different levels of spiritual maturity. Again, Scripture says our love for one another shows the world who God is. So I want to encourage the members of New Covenant Baptist Church, let's work really, really hard to love one another. Amen? Let's commit to doing this together. Let's pray hard that NCBC will continue to grow as a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church that reflects God's eternal kingdom and the diverse community of Southern Montgomery County. Let's pray and work hard toward a church community where anyone who walks into these doors will see the only reason we are united together as diverse and different as we may be is because the gospel. The gospel is here. They preach the gospel here. They preach Christ here. They preach God's word here. Let's be a gospel proclaiming and a gospel revealing church. Third and finally, who belongs in a church? Much shorter point, the baptized. The baptized. Over and over again, the scripture teaches, believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. Mark 16, 16, Acts 8, 12, Acts 8, 13, Acts 18, 8, and there are many more. Believe, then be baptized. Scripture is clear. It is believers who are baptized. There is no separation between the two. Believe, baptize. And the one who believes is the one who is baptized immediately following. If you believe, be baptized. No separation. Now, when we continue part two of our series on the church, we will focus specifically on the topic of baptism more in detail. So I'm not going to go too much into detail. But nowhere in the Bible is an infant baptized. Nowhere in the Bible is there a period of waiting to confirm someone of their faith. Scripture says, believe 
and be baptized. Now what baptism meant then and now is to publicly profess one's faith. So yes, keep the cultural context in mind back then. To publicly profess one's faith meant to embrace the reality that someone may be possibly disowned by their family or even martyred for their faith in Christ. It isn't like today where someone gets baptized and they take pictures and they clap and give you flowers and take you out to dinner. That's why I wish, it's just my desire, instead of clapping, we would all say out loud, we are witnesses when someone is baptized. But anyways, that's a topic for another conversation. (laughs) Anyways, we will talk more about baptism later in a later sermon. But the point I want to emphasize here is the close connection Scripture teaches us about one's conversion to faith, one's adoption to God's universal family, and finally, one's baptism into a local church community. An easier way to say this, perhaps, is baptism is the entrance, officially, into God's family to the local church. So according to the New Testament, as those who have been declared righteous in Christ through conversion, that person must pursue righteousness in their daily lives. Those who have been declared members of Christ's body through adoption must pursue membership in the actual group of Christians in a local church through baptism. We as Baptists especially believe that the New Testament church is composed of regenerate or converted believers. And therefore, although everyone is welcome to join us at our Sunday gatherings to hear the gospel, to be encouraged by the gospel, church membership is reserved for those who are converted, adopted, and baptized into the local church. I wish I had more time to get into this, but again, we will have a whole separate sermon on baptism coming soon, and also on church membership in a few months. So for now, let me conclude by challenging you with a couple questions. Brothers and sisters, how does thinking back on your public profession of faith reinvigorate your faith and your evangelism? Do you desire, as I do, for the church to display the gospel through our love for God, through our love for one another, and through our love for those who do not know Christ, through our gospel proclamation? Do you desire to display God's glory through the witness of the church? Matthew 15, 16 says, Let your light Shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. May we, the church of Jesus Christ, a community of the converted, adopted, and baptized, proclaim his promises boldly and faithfully and prayerfully that we would make more disciples of all nations. Amen? Let's pray.